This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was most likely written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ, back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today to talk about Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 is W. Robert Godfrey, professor of church history and president of Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, Reformation Sketches, and most recently, Westminster Seminary, California, A New Old School. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be back with you. So we're in the midst of one of the more fascinating passages in all of the New Testament, really, and certainly in the book of Hebrews, and that's this large section from Hebrews 3.7 through 4.13. And this is part two of a two-part discussion of this section. In the last episode, we looked at the way the pastor to the Hebrews uses Psalm 95 to warn the people about the danger of apostasy and the possibility of some of them, anyway, in the congregation— not entering into the rest. And it's a very solemn warning. So now in the beginning of chapter 4, he turns directly to this question of the rest and what it means to enter the rest. And so what is he talking about here, Bob, when he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Well, what the preacher, I think we can call him here, the preacher who wrote the letter to the Hebrews is saying to this people, have you really thought about what the outcome of your faith and life is going to be? Where are you headed? What will be the result of your commitment? And obviously, rest here is still being used in a future sense. Uh, He's not talking about whatever rest they may already think they possess in Christ. He's not talking about rest as a present reality. He's clearly talking about rest as a future reality. In that sense, he's taken a theme from Psalm 95 and, as the New Testament regularly does, shows the fulfillment of the images and types of the Old Testament in what Christ has done, is doing, will do. And so he's talking about that new heaven and new earth in which righteousness will dwell, which Christ is going to accomplish by his second coming. He's talking about that heavenly Jerusalem in the day that it comes down to earth. And he says, are you going to are you going to be there? Are you going to find your rest there? Or are you looking for some other kind of rest? Are you going to be content to stay in the types and shadows, which really ends up being a denial of what Christ has done? Or are you actually going to share in that great rest that he will provide on the last day? And so it's, a again, very serious, very powerful appeal in which, again, he is using the very Old Testament elements of thought that have perhaps been tempting these people to apostatize from Christ to show that they only make sense, they're only really fulfilled in Christ. 
So apostasy is a very real danger, and not entering rest is a very real danger. And he's invoking these Old Testament images, and rest in the Old Testament context was entering into Canaan, at least proximately. Right. And you've indicated that it's future here, but is it purely an indicator of time or place? Or could it even, in as some have argued, I'm thinking of uh, Andrew Lincoln, for example, and others, that the rest here actually ultimately refers to a person that is Jesus, the rest. Well, I don't want to get into Andrew Lincoln's arguments here in great detail, but I think Andrew Lincoln is wrong because I think he tries to turn the resting from works into a resting from dead works in effect, resting from evil works and making that a present reality. I don't think that's what's in the mind of the writer of the Hebrews. I think Richard Gaffin, in a really quite brilliant article on this, answered Lincoln and uh, is very helpful in showing that it's not just dead works that are going to be rested from, but it's all works, because there is still this obligation on the Christian to be working in following Christ and loving Christ and obeying Christ and resisting evil. And, and there's going to become a day when that's all over when uh, all of the sinful temptations that we face will be removed, we'll be fully sanctified and glorified. That's the rest he's looking forward to. And I think what's happening here in Hebrews 4 in particular is that we're being reminded that the theme of rest is a really central theme in the Old Testament, both as a place where the ark rests, Psalm 132, as the promised land, but also rest is critical as the Sabbath rest, the time rest, as well as the place rest. Now, both of these rests of the Old Testament are types. They point beyond themselves. The place of rest, the promised land, points beyond itself to the new heaven and new earth. The time of rest as one day out of seven points beyond itself to eternal rest, where there won't be a holy day and common days, but all days will be holy for the people of God in the presence of God. And what this section of Scripture is doing is appealing to both of those concepts to say there's a great rest coming. Don't miss it. We need to be very thoughtful and careful about that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 4.3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Which is an interesting use of that verse from Psalm 95. It isn't the one that would have immediately jumped to our minds necessarily. So we need to pay attention to the way that he makes use of that. What's the connection there? Well, again, I think he is reminding us and showing us that God finished his work and it entered into rest, and that one day we will finish our work and enter into rest, the very rest that God himself possesses. That's part of what the promised land anticipated, and it's also what the Sabbath day in the Old Covenant anticipated. And that's why he can move so seamlessly from the rest in terms of place to the rest in terms of time and unite them beautifully here for us. In the second half of verse 3, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So clearly they're referring to the creational pattern of creating in six days and resting on the seventh. And then the interesting language of verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. That's sort of interesting quotation formula that he uses. Do you think he he's slightly smiling when he says that? <laughs> Absolutely. He yeah. clearly knows where it is, but for his own rhetorical purposes. And maybe 
just slightly to poke these Hebrew Christians in the eye with probably their occasional claim of knowing the scriptures so well in the Old Testament. Mm. He's reminding them that he knows them pretty well, too. Exactly. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And then verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The significance of today here and the significance of good news. You know, I think it's a little like what Paul writes in Second Corinthians 6. Today is the day of salvation. This is the day of salvation. Don't postpone trusting the Lord. Don't postpone repenting as if time goes on forever. This is the day. This is the day the word reaches you. This is the day in which you ought to know that you're committed to Christ. This is the day in which you need to accept that good news, that Christ is the better and indeed the only way. And so all of this is making that same central point. It's a sermon with many subpoints, but only one big point, that we're called to Christ and can find rest only in Him. We have brothers and sisters who might be surprised to know that the gospel was preached under Moses and under David. And yet the writer to the Hebrews takes that for granted, that the good news was preached to them. He says that explicitly, as it has been to us. What is remarkable in the New Testament, and particularly remarkable in light of how often this seems to be missed in the contemporary American church, Bible-believing church, is that God has one people. That's why this letter can quote Psalm 95 and apply it immediately, directly, absolutely to the church. What The Holy Spirit said to the Church of the Old Covenant in Psalm 95 applies directly to the Church of the New Covenant that's being addressed in Hebrews 3 and 4. We are one people, and the one people is Israel, into whom the Gentiles have been incorporated. Paul makes that point over and over again, certainly in in Romans 11, that we've been grafted in, certainly most powerfully, I think, in Ephesians chapter 2, that Christ has broken down the wall of division, creating one new man. And who's that one new man? It's the Gentiles now part of the commonwealth of Israel. I mean, Galatians 6, where he refers to the, the church as the Israel of God, the visible institutional church. Right. This is the crucial point, that while the Old Testament is the time of promise, and the New Testament is the time of fulfillment. It is the one people of God who had the promise and experienced the fulfillment. Now the argument turns in verse 8, chapter 4, in an interesting direction, and he takes this rest principle another step, and again, in a way that might surprise us. So we need to pay attention to how the argument goes. For, he says, if Joshua had given them rest, and Joshua did lead them into the promised land, which was a kind of rest, Right. But he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And this is an absolutely fascinating and critical passage of Scripture. What he's saying there, again, is is just part and parcel of what we've been saying up to this point. The entrance into the promised land, which Joshua did give to the people, was not the end. That was not the real rest. It was, at best, only a type of the eternal rest to come. But again, the shift from verse 8 to verse 9 is intriguing because, again, the two rests, the rest of place and the rest of time, are bound together. And so we read in verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest 
fast or a Sabbath keeping or a Sabbathing for the people of God. What's intriguing about that is that this word here in Greek is a word that apparently the author to Hebrews made up as he was going along. It's used only here in the New Testament, and it is really just taken over from the Greek and Hebrew original into English. It is Sabbath. A sabbatismos. A sabbatismos. And what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is that all of those people who say that the Sabbath was an institution of Moses irrelevant to the life of the church are flat out wrong. Whatever we conclude positively this verse means, it certainly means that as we as Christians think about the eternal life that is promised us in the new heaven and the new earth, that eternal life can be described as a Sabbath. And if that eternal life can be described as a Sabbath, then the institution of the Sabbath in the Old Testament is not simply mosaic, is not irrelevant to the people of God, but has profound continuing significance for the way in which the church sees itself and the way in which the church lives and hopes in that eternal blessedness to come. It seems very clear here, whatever we conclude about this passage relative to the ongoing weekly Sabbath, specifically the question of a Christian Sabbath, that the pastor to the Hebrews believed that the Sabbath as an institution was intimately connected to creation, and he doesn't connect it to Moses. I think that's very, very important because many of our brothers and sisters simply assume that Sabbath has only to do with Moses. And one will frequently read in the literature, well, of course, there was no Sabbath until Moses. And I don't think the writer to the Hebrews thinks that at all. First of all, he's fully aware of Exodus 20, verse 8, which connects the Sabbath with creation. And behind that, he's fully aware of the creation narrative in what we would call Genesis 1 and 2. Well, exactly. And I always think it's so ironic that there are people today who spend a huge amount of time debating exactly what Genesis 1 and 2 mean and miss one of the most important things that's being taught there. When we read in Genesis 2 verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. For whom did God bless the seventh day? For whom did God make it holy? God lives above time. He's not blessing time for himself. He's not making a day holy for himself. All of God's existence is in holiness. All of God's existence is above time. And therefore, the only way you can read this is that God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy for man, whom he's made in his own image. And if there was any doubt about that, Jesus takes all the doubt away when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here we have the clearest possible teaching that God is in creation, establishes the seventh day as a Sabbath that is holy to him, that is blessed for man, that is the day of intimate fellowship between creator and creature. And so that's exactly what's being argued here in Hebrews 4, that we have to understand that and therefore have to see this pattern placed into creation at the very beginning, which from the very beginning has pointed to the fact that one day fulfillment is coming when all of time will be holy, all of time will be blessed, and all of time will be lived in that intimate fellowship with God to which the Sabbath institution points. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically 
rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. The function of invoking the Sabbath here in the context of the potential threatened, impending apostasy of people in this congregation is to do what? He wants them to think a certain way, but there's a precise point, it seems, to which he's coming, right? Yeah, and the precise point, it seems to me, I don't know what precise point you're coming to, but it seems to me, the precise point is the classic Sunday school answer, Jesus. Well, yes. I mean, the precise point is that we will one day enter into rest, into eternal blessedness and fellowship with Jesus, and that he's the one who's leading us there. He's the one who's accomplishing that. But I think what's critical, and I think what Gaffet argues very helpfully in his article, is that this Sabbath rest envisioned in Hebrews 4, verse 9, is future. And if the fulfillment of the Sabbath type is future, then it seems almost unavoidable that the Sabbath type remains to point us to that future. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't remain with some changes, just as circumcision is changed to baptism. So a seventh-day Sabbath is changed to a first-day celebration of the resurrection of Christ, because in his resurrection, he enters his rest and promises that we'll enter rest in him. But this text, then, is a crucial one for saying there is a clear rationale for one day in seven to continue to have typological significance for the people of God. We're still looking forward. We're not there yet. Right. And therefore, all the people who say that all days alike are in the New Covenant, misusing what Paul says, are just profoundly wrong. And they are clearly profoundly wrong if you read Revelation 1, verse 10, where John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Can you explain the significance of that? I certainly can, and I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the significance of that verse is, is just tremendous, because John, in this almost offhanded way— speaks about the Lord's Day as if everyone would know what he was talking about. He's not arguing for a Lord's Day. He's assuming a Lord's Day in the New Covenant. And what can the Lord's Day be in the New Covenant? Well, it's a day that belongs uniquely to the Lord. Lord's there is an adjectival form. It's the dominical day. And that adjective is used I believe only one other place in the New Testament to refer to the Lord's Supper. There are many suppers, but there's only one Lord's Supper. There are many days, but there's only one Lord's Day. And what that clearly means is that still in the New Covenant, there is a day in the week that uniquely belongs to the Lord. That's the day of the resurrection of the Lord. When Paul talks about Sabbaths and new moons, it's pretty clear, just to anticipate an objection, that when he says that, he's not referring to the creational institution, but to something else. Right. He's referring there to the whole elaboration of the ecclesiastical calendar that did take place under Moses, that was unique to Moses and to the people in the Promised Land. 
in a sense, that was in part an elaboration of the creational Sabbath. But when Paul says we're not bound to all of that Jewish ceremonialism, to that whole Jewish calendar, he certainly is not talking about the creational institution itself that does still bind us. To be sure, one could keep a weekly Sabbath, a creational Sabbath, or even the recreational Sabbath, that is the beginning of the new creation in Christ, inaugurated in his resurrection, and still miss out on the ultimate true final rest, as Hebrews goes on to say in 4.11 and following, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Exactly. I mean, one can be baptized, one can make profession of faith, one can be a regular church attender, one can be a Sabbath keeper, one can go right down the list, but if those practices don't flow out of a genuinely believing heart, then they ultimately don't bear the fruit of that eternal rest. So the danger that the Hebrew Christian faced is really the danger of going back to the types and shadows, missing out on the reality, and ultimately of not having the principle of new life, of regeneration, which the Holy Spirit gives, and then, as a consequence, missing out on all of the benefits of the covenant of grace. Right. And the problem is that they have failed to really believe Jesus, just as the Israelites in Exodus 17, we're saying, is God among us or not? These people are saying, is Jesus God among us or not? And not to believe that Jesus is God among us means that you lose all the benefits of what the Old and New Covenant are about. And that's why this book is so marvelous to sort of go through Old Testament practice and institution, you know, one after another to show how they all point to Jesus, how they're all fulfilled in Jesus, and how no one will appreciate what they really mean except through faith in Jesus. You know, some people have said, well, the church in the theology of some people replaces Israel. And I want to say, no, we don't believe at all that the church replaces Israel. We want to say the church is the fulfillment of all that was given to Israel and that the church really is Israel come into its own. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And it's not as if either the pastor to the Hebrews or Paul, assuming they're different people, are disinterested in seeing ethnic Jews coming to saving faith in Jesus and therefore truly becoming Israel. No, exactly. The point of Paul and this letter, it seems to me, is precisely to say, won't you Jews please see that this is in the first place for you? Won't you please see that this was all given to you so that you might more easily and more fully see that Christ is the fulfillment of this, that Jesus is the Christ? That's why this letter is so powerful and so poignant. And then it closes with the same theme with which we began, and that is the uniqueness, the authority, the inspiration of God's Word, the Holy Scriptures. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If we can think of the letter to the Hebrews as a sermon, this is almost a sermon within a sermon, and this is 4, 11 through 13 is the conclusion of that sermon within a sermon. And it's a very pointed and powerful conclusion, which says, in effect, to these people, so have you listened to the Word of God? We've been expounding the Word of God from Psalm 95. We have been warning you about the dangers of not listening to the Word of God, of not believing and of disobeying and therefore failing the enter, enter in the rest. Have you listened? 
Have you heard this? And this living Word of God comes to you now, and it's going to expose you. It's going to expose you in the presence of God. You're going to have to give account to God one day. And when you give account to God, this Word is going to be alive in your judgment and is going to expose you as either those who have said, yes, Lord, I believe in your Christ and I repent of my unbelief, or you're going to be those who are going to stand against Christ and who are going to hear the awful word of God, I have loathed you. You can hear the echoes of the prophets in the background. Absolutely. Saying, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. These are people in this congregation who are saying, you know, and they're listening to people, being tempted by people who are saying, if you're really going to follow Moses and follow the scriptures, then you need to follow the way of the rabbis, the way of the Pharisees. Right. And the writer of the Hebrews isn't granting any quarter to them about what it means to obey and believe God's Word. And we can have a certain sympathy for these people. They were told that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of all the expectation. And what have they experienced in the last 30 years or so? Well, they've experienced persecution. They've experienced hardship. They've realized they're part of a very small community at that time. And it's not surprising that their minds begin to think, wouldn't it be easier to go back to the old religion? Wouldn't it be lovely to go back to Jerusalem? I remember how glorious the temple is. I remember how splendid the sacrifices are. I remember how glorious the vestments of the high priest are. I miss all that. And now I'm part of this little despised people that don't have a temple. They don't have a place. Their clergy don't amount to much. Uh, half of them look like Scott Clark and, you know, uh, bald and haggard. And um, <laughs> you, you can understand that what is appealing to them is a kind of worldliness. This world seems better at the moment than what Christ has to offer. And this is a, a marvelous sermon that says, don't be taken in. That's not true. The glory is to come. There is suffering now, but the glory is to come, and that glory is eternal rest in Christ. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.